Welcome back to the podcast, and my guest today is David Aranchak of ZodiacKillerCiphers.com. How you doing, Dave? Doing great. How are you? I'm doing well. Thanks for doing the show again. We're going to talk about uh, your series on YouTube, but before that, why don't you uh, fill me in a little bit on how you've been doing and what's been going on with you since the quarantine and lockdown and everything? Well, I've been keeping busy, you know. Um, my kids are doing a lot of online learning, so we're keeping busy with that. And I have all been working at home for many years anyway, so it wasn't that big of a switch for me to switch into this work-from-home mode because uh, I was already there. But during the quarantine, one of the things I decided to do to kind of keep myself occupied was to produce this new YouTube series about the Zodiac ciphers. I had a lot of ideas about things to talk about and um, and ways to convey information about the code breaking process and the information that goes into you know the the useful information that you can get from the ciphers and how to interpret it and you know basically it's a video series that combines classical cryptography with true crime um, even though it's narrowly focused on the zodiac case you know there's elements from other crimes that could potentially end up in the show. But I thought it would be a, a nice way to go over some of the ideas about the case. Um, the first episode I did was about Robert Graysmith's solution for the 340 that he mm -hmm. presented in his book. He made a, a big deal about his solution being correct, and he made all these claims about the solution being authenticated by uh, members of the American Cryptogram Association and so I looked into that, and I'd, I'd always been dubious about the um, claims that he had made. Mm -hmm. So that first episode is basically like a deep dive into the, the story behind that cipher, his solution, and uh, my analysis of what he submitted. And his solution actually ended up in the FBI files related to the case. Mm -hmm. And so there's some interesting FBI analysis that's part of that. There are um, two other people I've been working with on the ciphers. One of them is Jarl van Eike. He's a programmer from Belgium, and he wrote the really good code-breaking software called AZ Decrypt. And we collaborate on some experiments, and you can see those on Mike Morford's forum, sodiacpillarsite.com. And he's basically written a really excellent piece of software for cracking homophonic ciphers, and not just homophonic ciphers, but a lot of variations of encipherment techniques that people have been trying to use on the 340 to come up with ways to to break it and so his software is basically like an experimental platform for exploring all those ideas so that's been interesting you know obviously nothing has turned up yet with as far as a solution but, mm. uh, but his software is really powerful and there's a lot of potential there and then uh, i've also been working with a another programmer out in australia who's been sending me variations of um manipulations of the 340 and i've been feeding those into az decrypt to see if um, any solutions can come out and that that work is ongoing you say that you're used to being at home and working at home are you like having clips where your children are coming in behind you and interrupting you like you see on the news i get, I get interrupted every now and then but uh, you know that i have my own office kind of separate from the main house so they are um they seem to be pretty self-sufficient for now <laughs> Because that seems to be the thing with Zoom calls now is uh, weird background problems. During my lockdown, I uh, had to deal with a lot of stuff like a lot of other people. But there was one interesting 
element of all that that kept me busy and kept me preoccupied and uh, distracted from the virus. And that was back in uh, November of last year. Uh, I was contacted by the producers of a show about the Zodiac for Japanese television. And after a couple months of helping them and, you know, being a consultant, they were talking about flying a crew out here to interview me. And we were in the process of trying to put that together when the whole COVID lockdown happened. And then they had to change the plan. And we decided to do an interview by Skype. And I have never done a foreign language interview by Skype before. The producers were really detail-oriented and asked a lot of good questions. But the interview lasted about three hours. And that's largely because of the translation back and forth and because they wanted to explore so much. And I was in the process of moving when that was going on. And so I was literally like in my apartment with nothing left in that apartment except these two bookshelves behind me for background and had got it all set up. And we did the interview and then packed up all the books and moved. And then I get this notice saying, we want to do another interview. And so I had to set it all up again. And we did another three hour interview. But if anybody actually ends up watching this show, which is called Dark Side Mystery, and it aired in Japan already. If anybody does watch it, you'll notice that the books behind me change throughout the interview back and forth because I didn't put the same books on the same shelves. <laughs> but that was a really interesting experience because of the way that they view this legendary story and, and the way that they were trying to tell it from their point of view with their own history there about the Zodiac copycat and Kobe. And so the final product was really interesting. So your series is called Let's Crack Zodiac, which, as you said, has not led to any solutions yet. So I guess you guys are just really lazy. We'll, we'll save that for the finale episode. Oh, great. Okay. Well, we'll be on pins and needles waiting for that then. You said that your first episode was about the Graysmith solution, which is, of course, kind of legendary for being one of those things that has been floating around for a long time. But there are some serious problems with that. Well, Graysmith, I think, has a he is motivated to tell stories. So his the book about Zodiac is very story driven. He kind of imagines some of the like inner dialogue that the characters in the story, you know, the victims in particular, uh, may have had, and so that makes it for that makes a very compelling read. You know, it's it's kind of supported by a framework of case details that came from his own research and contacts with the um, uh, law enforcement and the um, people investigating the, the crimes. But, you know, he takes some liberties with the story, you know, to make it more interesting to read. And, mm -hmm. you know, his motivation for saying that he solved the, the cipher was maybe just, you know, he needed something to write about to make it interesting. And, you know, I, I, I'm, I can't get into his brain, so I don't know what his motivation was or why he thought he solved it or if he really did think he solved it. Mm -hmm. um, but the fact is that the solution he presents is deeply flawed and is a common uh, mistake that people who approach the ciphers make, which is they'll change the rules of the encipherment, basically, to make more interesting words appear. Because, mm -hmm. you know, when, when the 408, the first cipher was solved... Um, you know, it's a, it was a uh, trial and error type process. You know, you're trying out different words and letters and substitutions to see what comes out. And if you're on the right track, it can become exciting because you're seeing 
you know, when you plug in a word in one place, you might see another interesting word appear somewhere else. Mm-hmm. And I think that's what the Hardens experienced when they were um, breaking that first code. And so a similar thing happens when you're poking around with the 340. When you're plugging in substitutions, it may look like words are popping out somewhere else in the ciphertext, but they don't form complete coherent thoughts. So there's a lot of incentive for people to adjust the rules so that those words make more sense. Mm-hmm. And that's that's basically what Graysmith did is, you know, he, he came up with a decryption that um, has a few words in it, but it's mostly nonsense. But, oh, yeah. <laughs> but, but, but he rearranged the letters to make the words make sense. But even after making words that make sense, the, the entire message still is kind of nonsensical because it's like this like halting baby talk, you know, nonsense that um, you have to kind of force it to make sense. And that's a that's a common characteristic of these kinds of solutions that people have um, proposed for the 340. And there's all sorts of creative, imaginative ways of pulling those kinds of messages out of the cipher. And none of them so far have been shown to be what Zodiac intended, you know, for, for the message for that cipher. Well, the 408 has a pretty clear message when it's deciphered. It, it flows like something that you would expect to be in that message. But the solution, like you said, it appears to be gibberish throughout it. Things like, so I stare, eat a pill. Obviously, he was forcing that solution. But to me, the fact that the message isn't clear is a problem right away, which makes me wonder why other people are so willing to overlook those problems. You mentioned earlier that Graysmith had claimed that his solution was confirmed. And if I recall correctly, it was by the ACA. And yeah. um, there was somebody named Marsh, I think, if my memory's serving me correctly. I tried to look into that myself years ago and never got a response from them. What, if anything, did you learn about that? Well, I am a member of the ACA, the American Cryptogram Association, today. And you know, the organization has been around since the 1920s, I believe. Mm-hmm. And it started... Um, is kind of a, an outlet for people that are interested in solving like newspaper style cryptograms, you know, the, that was common back then. Uh, it was a popular pastime, you know, like doing um, crossword puzzles and, and um, word searches and things like that. So it's another kind of puzzle solving, uh, recreational puzzle solving activity. Those like fiction magazines Mm-hmm. You know, with the lurid detective stories and crime stories, and a lot of them featured classical cryptography, you know, where some character, the nefarious criminal, would hide messages, and then the hero of the story comes across some mysterious piece of paper with this, with this message on it, and he has to solve the code before the next crime happens, you know. And so the, you know, the, the stories would often feature the steps that the hero went through to solve the codes, and then... Uh, because there was so much interest in those aspects of the stories, there were frequently these um, informative nonfiction columns. Like um, one of them was called Solving Cipher Secrets. And it was basically just an article about methods of making codes and methods of breaking them. So all these different techniques of uh, making and breaking codes. And then that eventually, the some of the authors who would make those articles they got together and formed the American Cryptogram Association, and, and that's where a lot of those articles ended up. And um, they uh, came out with a publication every other month called The Cryptogram, 
And what they do is they challenge each other with their own like homemade ciphers, and then they have keep a running score of who's breaking the most ciphers. You know that you submit your solutions to the organization, and then they they judge which solutions were right, and then so they're just breaking codes for fun. But so anyway, Graysmith in his book said that he had contacted the I'm not sure if it was the president of the ACA, but he claimed that he called them. And then on the phone, he received a confirmation that the solution was correct. But I've asked around in the ACA, and I, I can find nobody who has ever heard of Graysmith's solution being verified. There's no, there's no confirmation of his claim anywhere. No one's Which you would to... kind of expect to find, right? Yeah. If I mean that was a, it would be a pretty significant piece of information. You know, should have ended up in the newspapers at least. <laughs> oh yeah, yeah. So the American Cryptogram Association, because the president at the time, DCB Marsh, who you mentioned, he's featured a lot in my uh, third episode of Let's Crack Zodiac, where I talked a lot about the 408, because he confirmed the Hardens solution. They sent him the uh, Hardens solution, and he, um, the way he did it was according to an article I found about him, he got like the first few words of the Hardens solution. And then he didn't look at the rest of it. Instead, he he cracked the rest of it himself and found that it matched what the Hardens found. And so um, he confirmed the, the solution, not just not just by looking at the Hardens solution, but by deriving it himself using the, the crib, the first few words of the solution that they found. Yeah, there had there hasn't been any confirmation from anyone in the American Cryptogram Association that the Graysmith solution was validated. Well, and like you said, you would expect to find that because one of the things that I noticed was that Graysmith solution is so problematic and so seemingly gibberish that when he claims that the ACA confirmed it, it only makes you question the ACA. <laughs> it makes you go, wait a minute, who's in charge over there, you know? Right. So exactly. it's it's a kind of a relief to find that there is no official confirmation of that because that would be disturbing to think that someone would confirm a solution like that, especially when it not only seems so problematic, but as we talked about before in a previous episode, the FBI files detail how the FBI responded to his claims and they weren't impressed. They didn't think that was a valid solution. He did mention two members by name. I, I just dug it up just now. Um, because I was having trouble recalling the names, but the the ACA members he mentioned specifically were um, Greg Mellon and mm -hmm. Eugene Waltz. And yeah. Both of them are real people who were in the American Cryptogram Association, but no one's been able to confirm. You know, I mean, they're they've long passed um, since then, but no one is familiar or knows of any reference they've made to Graysmith's solution being correct. Now we should mention that in Robert Graysmith's book, he does include two letters which were purportedly written by Greg Mellon and Eugene Waltz of the ACA, in which they appear to confirm his solution and congratulate him. Given the fact that there's no other confirmation for this, you have to wonder about the accuracy of their confirmation and the methods they used to reach that conclusion, especially when the FBI concluded that Robert Graysmith's solution was not valid. I mean, he was pretty clear about, like, taking credit for solving it. And it's depicted in the movie, too, the Fincher movie. You know, it has a scene where Graysmith, played by um, Jake Gyllenhaal, you know, he's, he's talking to a news reporter and he's asking him, how'd you do it? And he, you know, talks about how he came up with the solution as if it was a 
historical fact that Graysmith solved the 340, and it, and it simply isn't. Yeah. That's just one of the fictions that's in the, in the movie and the book. The fact that somebody had solved a Zodiac cipher would be news. It wouldn't just be on your local news. And I think it's always been a little strange that when I tried to get some information about it years later, nobody seemed to know anything about it. Yeah, and in the FBI files, they actually go through a, a cryptanalysis of his solution, you know, and they basically rejected it in very clear language. And mm-hmm. I have some of the excerpts, you know, they say it's not a valid decryption. It fails to yield a unique solution. The letters could be reassembled in myriad ways, some of which could be actual words. The solution has been forced. Any random selection of words could be arranged to be as logical as those in the proposed poetic solution. And probably my favorite line from the FBI file is, the sense of rightness is completely absent in the proposed solution. (laughs) But it also says in there that in the 408, the sense of rightness was obvious and that the fact that it's not obvious and seems so jumbled and confused is a red flag that there's something wrong with it. A lot of people think that Graysmith was some sort of super sleuth who found out all kinds of things about the case that nobody ever discovered before. And this is one of those instances that lends credence to that myth if you don't follow up and check the facts. And it doesn't appear that any other experts believe that Robert Graysmith's solution is valid. Yeah, there may have been some people on the Zodiac forums uh, bought into Graysmith's solution, or they claimed that they that he was on the right track, so that it may not be completely correct, but it mm-hmm. might be uh, more correct than it isn't. Yeah. <laughs> but it's hard to determine. You can't really determine that because it's already wrong to begin with, so it's not really close to the right solution because nobody knows what the right solution is, so you can't really measure how far away from it it yeah. is like it's like um when you're digging for for gold you're either close to it or you're not <laughs> you don't have a way of knowing how close you are to it so you can't just claim like well this one is is closer because it because i like it better <laughs> i like it more yeah that's, that's something i hear a lot when when people talk about these solutions online they'll claim that their solution makes the most sense and therefore it is more correct than the other ones they've seen yeah, yeah. But that, just that doesn't mean anything because the solution is nowhere near what the plain text may or may not be. You know, there, there's no way of knowing until the solution's found. On your website, I've tried to use your tools there to try my hand at solving the zodiac cipher. And you know, when you type the first few words in or whatever, and it starts to look like maybe it could be something. Further on down, you'll start to see places where your solution obviously can't be right where there are letters together that can't possibly form a word in in English. If you're being honest with yourself, as soon as you start to come into those problems, your brain sort of says, well, I have to start over and ditch this attempt. But what the problem seems to come is when someone started that out and then they find a couple words that they like, and then where it starts to fall apart further down, they start forcing it. So the problem comes from people trying to cling to a solution But if you start forcing everything and you start trying to push things where they go and you change the rules, then it's super easy to come up with a solution. Yeah. And there's some there's some complications to that, too. Like one of the justifications for changing the rules when you're decoding the 340 is if you looked at the 408, the last 18 symbols are still mysterious. Nobody knows what the purpose of the last 18 symbols was because it doesn't fit in 
that section of the cipher doesn't fit with the uh, with the Hardens solution. The message that they found only continues up until right before the last 18 letters, and then it turns into gibberish, just like random letters. And nobody's been able to figure out for sure what the purpose of that was. So one of the ideas is, well, maybe it's just filler. It was just padding the ciphertext so it would fit a certain you know, shape, uh, a certain grid or a piece of paper. And you know, there's, there's some evidence for that. So in the 340, you could, you could extend that argument and say, well, maybe the second half of the cipher is complete nonsense. It's just, he just put it there for just to mess with people. And then the, only the first part of the cipher has a message. But even so, you still have to demonstrate that if you found a solution just for the first half, you'd have to prove that it's unambiguously the correct solution. Meaning if different people can come up with different plausible messages for the first half, then you don't really have a way of telling which one is the right one because then you're just being subjective. Like the message that Bob found is better than the one that Linda found, you know? So it, it becomes just a, like a contest of um, creative ideas instead of something that's cryptographically verifiable. I don't fault people for trying out different ideas like that. Another justification that comes up is, well, Zodiac wasn't a normal cryptographer. He's not, he's not a cryptographer. He's not, allegedly, he's not a cryptographer. Nobody knows who he is, so we don't know. Yeah, yeah. But if you just assume that, you know, he picked up cryptography on his own by reading detective stories or if he learned it somewhere, maybe in the military or whatever, you know, he, he may have a, you know, his own understanding of how codes work. And he may have just decided to invent some weird or um, illogical type of, crypt, uh, of, of encipherment. And so you can use that to justify a lot of different variations of how to hide a message. And so people will come up with really strange ways of coming out with the messages, but many of them suffer from the same problem of, well, if you allow those kinds of rules to be in play, then you can generate all sorts of different messages out of the ciphertext, and you don't know for sure which one's the right one. It's like if you have your own suspect in mind mm-hmm. and go, oh, look, there's there's his name. So this solution is might be, um, it might be correct because uh, I can get my suspect's name to come out of it. Or details about their life. You know, my suspect was raised in, you know, Nebraska. So there's mention of Nebraska in the solution. And people come up with all sorts of things like that to justify their solutions. Your second episode is about bigrams. Could you tell us a little bit about what bigrams are and how they fit into the story of the ciphers? Sure. So when you're looking at a um, a substitution cipher, for anyone who doesn't know what a substitution cipher is, it's, it's the most... It's like the simplest kind of hidden message where you, you you write down your message and then you replace all the letters with other letters. So like you take the letter E from your message, all the letter E's, and you replace them with Q's. And then you replace all the letter T's with letters the, uh, with the letter X. And you, you keep doing this. And then eventually you come up with, a, it looks like gibberish. It's just a, you know, a bunch of letters together that don't make sense. But you just reverse the process to decode that message. You know, you replace the Q's back to E's and then the X's back to T's and so forth for the rest of the letters. And then you get the message. That's basically what the 408 was. The first cipher was that kind of substitution, except he allowed for um, letters to be replaced by more than one symbol. You know, not just letters and uh, 
the you know normal looking letters, but uh, the backwards and upside down versions of those letters, plus some mm -hmm. special symbols like circles and triangles and squares and so on. And that way he was able to disguise the message even more because in a substitution cipher, if I took an English message, you know, something written in English and replaced all of the E's with Q's, there would be a lot of Q's in the, in the ciphertext because E is the most common letter in English. Mm -hmm. You look at any piece of English and count up the letters, E is going to be at the top of the list most of the time. And so that's one of the hints in the ciphertext is you can look at those cues and go, hmm, those might be standing for the letter E. So I'm suspicious. I think those are the letter E. And then you start doing the trial and error process of trying out different substitutions and then you eventually come up with the answer. So the 408, it's harder to do with the 408 because he used seven different symbols to stand for the plain text letter E. And so the Hardens had a bit of a, a more difficult time and so they'd find things like these pairs of um, square-shaped symbols that were repeating together in several places in the ciphertext. And they'd correctly guessed that it was a common doubled letter pair, L and L, next to each other. Because that appears in words like I'll, will, and the word that it ended up being in the plain text for Zodiac's message, kill. Mm -hmm. He used the word kill and killing a lot. So those were some of the patterns that were um, seen in the 408. Now, those two-letter pairs, those um, pairs of two symbols in the ciphertext, uh, they're called bigrams. That just means two letters that occur next to each other. And when you look at a piece of um, English writing, some bigrams are happening more than others. Like another example is T and H. T and H happen next to each other a lot because it's in a lot of very common words like the this there then you know mm -hmm. those, those very common words are in a lot of english text so when you encipher them you'll see those patterns repeat whatever symbols are standing for t and h are going to repeat a lot and so the 408 is filled with those kinds of repeated pairs of symbols and so one of the ways to attack the 340 is to look for those patterns see if there's any repeating patterns that might they might be hiding the uh, underlying plain text and you can find some, but there aren't that many. There aren't as many as there should be. But if you make certain manipulations of the 340's ciphertext, then more of those bigrams can be found. More of those repeating bigrams can be found. And there are some interesting manipulations of the 340 that cause um, the bigrams to be really high. And what that suggests to cryptographers is that there's some kind of transposition going on. And a transposition, all that means is you're doing something to the plain text before you do the substitution. Like one example is you write your message out in a block and then you rewrite it by taking the letters in the columns. So you're writing it, you're looking at the first letter of the message and instead of reading it from left to right, the normal reading direction, you're reading it from top to bottom and then left to right. And so when you write those letters down, they're, they're out of order and you, you can't make any sense of them until you reverse the process. That's a simple thing that you can do to a message before doing a substitution that would make it unsolvable if all you were trying was a simple substitution. So mm -hmm. the, there's another step involved that could explain why we see this phenomenon of uh, the repeating bigrams when we 
look at certain manipulations of the ciphertext. It's it's a little bit. It's easier to explain in the video because yeah. there's yeah. a lot of visual aids in the video that kind of make it more clear of what I'm talking about. So <laughs> I will shamelessly plug episode two. <laughs> so, um, well, visuals are really important when you're talking about all this. But if you watch the video, it's very clearly explained. You know what I mean by the repeating bigrams. Now, so, what kind of feedback have you gotten? You know, people who like it want me to make more, more episodes, and it seems to have a pretty decent reach. It's a very specific kind of a niche, a niche audience. You know, because mm -hmm. it's true crime, but it's not broad. It's not a broad, broadly general true crime video series. It's specifically about the zodiac ciphers and all these topics around them. So you know, the first episode was about one guy's particular solution and analyzing it. The second one was about biograms in the 340s. So like, why are they important? And why do we think it's an interesting um, angle to explore for the 340? And then the third one is about uh, the 408. So it's basically a deep dive into the 408 because that one was inspired by, I, people keep asking me about the 408. Mm -hmm. How was it solved? Who were the hardens? How did they do it? How do we know that the solution is right? That one's a common question. Um, and so I tried to answer all of those in the in episode three, and that ended up being the longest episode because there's it turned out to be quite an extensive topic. And so the I'd encourage people to watch that episode too because there's a lot of interesting details in there that, that came out of my research. It is a little complicated, and it can be kind of overwhelming for people who aren't familiar with it. So I think a series like that is important because some of us need some practical instruction on how ciphers work and how these issues are resolved. Obviously, you've gotten some viewership on YouTube. Where do you go from there? You said that you had a, another episode planned. Yeah, I've got uh, loads of ideas about future episodes. There's, there's so many things to talk about. Yeah, like the, the next episode is going to be about code-breaking software because there's so much of it out there. And I, I don't think people are very familiar with what's out there for, for code-breaking. Just anyone can download it. And some of it, you don't even have to download anything. You just go to a website and you can you can play around with cryptography software. And so the goal of the video is to just kind of give a broad overview of how to do all that in an accessible way. And that's, you know, like you said, I'm, I'm, I'm focusing on trying to explain things in a way that's accessible. You know, I don't, I don't want to get too technical about about things. You know, the the technical side of it interests me, but if it if it gets too technical in the videos, then you know people are going to lose interest. And just trying to explain things in a way that makes sense, that's um, you know easy to digest. Um, I don't know if I've gotten there yet, but um, that's the goal. There's other notable solution um, uh, proposals out there that have been in the news, like. Um, Lyndon Lafferty's book, you know, he had a solution claim for the 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 my name is cipher, the 13 symbol one. Mm -hmm. And then there's the Corey Starlipper one, the, the, <laughs> the 340. But you know, I I'm kind of leaning a little less towards specific solutions because I, I think I'm what I should be doing instead, this is probably what I'm going to do actually, is um focus on the, the methods that they have in common that are that are problematic like anagramming you know mm. when people when people try out anagramming like gray smith did you know he's not the only one that has tried that you know, many people have tried anagramming and you know if, if zodiac had done any kind of anagramming 
you know, anagramming is just rearranging the letters within words. If he did some kind of random anagramming of the message before enciphering, well, he could have done that. It's, it's true that he could have done that. But if you allow that, then you can't verify a solution because yeah. if the anagrams are arbitrary, meaning you can rearrange it however you wish without any kind of like method, you know, mm -hmm. or pattern, then you can make it say anything. But if there was a pattern to it, then that would be more compelling of, a, of an approach. But that's one example of, you know, something that um, the problematic solutions have in common. Another one is the use of numerology that comes up a lot. Mm -hmm. People get into these like mystical um, manipulations of numbers, you know, or gematria, you know, the ancient, yeah. Yeah, the ancient art of, you know, assigning numbers to letters. And then you do this arithmetic with the resulting numbers and you can make it come up with like the date of birth of a suspect or the date of a crime or other important numbers like the, you know, if you mention the number 37 in the letter, claiming the number of victims, 37 that to some other piece of evidence that's interesting to you using numerology and that's a that's a commonly abused uh, uh, method of extracting messages from these um, zodiac writings and that's problematic um, so there's a couple of categories like that where i think it would be more instrumental more educational for people to see what's wrong with those kinds of approaches because people send me solutions almost every day mm -hmm. get emails or like youtube comments from people um, asking me to look at the solutions, which I enjoy doing, but I don't, I, I get so many of them, I can't keep up with all of them. And so I end up just filing them and, and having them to look at later. But I noticed that there's different combinations of um, flawed ideas in, in that. So, uh, but the, some of those ideas are things that I could explore in the video series to show like, why is it, um, problematic to use numerology or to use anagrams or to to do these uh, um, word find type things that people are doing and so on so there's there's a lot of interesting ideas that people have explored and you know i don't want to discourage people from trying those things but there are some frequently used mistakes that <laughs> lead people down the wrong path and they get they get excited something that kind of makes sense popping out of their solution attempt. And, you know, I've, I've felt that before, too. You know, I used to write programs to try to crack the 340, you know, just treating it as a substitution cipher, you know, not, not doing anything fancy with the with the encipherment rules. Hmm. And I would see, you know, words that looked like Zodiac-like words, you know, like murder and death and you know, stuff like that. And I would feel that, like, oh, I might, might be on the right track because it sounds like something Zodiac would say. Then you could start to um, go down that rabbit hole. You know, I can, I can, I can understand that feeling of like, oh, maybe if I adjust this here, you know, mm -hmm. if I maybe Zodiac, maybe he made a mistake. Maybe he meant to say, you know, meant to spell it this way, and that fixes that mistake. And so it makes more sense when you fix the mistake that you think that he made. But people go too way too far down that line of thinking, and then they just they just conjure up the message themselves. They're not actually revealing a message that he left. Instead, it's the message that the, the codebreaker has, has accidentally put in to the, to the answer. Numerology is a bottomless pit. And you talk about going down a rabbit hole. Since we last did an episode of this podcast, Gary Stewart's documentary series has aired The Most Dangerous Animal of All. And one of his claims 
is that he has solved the ciphers by finding his father's name in all four of the Zodiac ciphers. Now, I thought that this show did a pretty decent job of dismantling his entire theory. And uh, you briefly appeared in the show discussing that issue. Um, what did you think about the way that was presented in the show and about how people think about those solutions? I was surprised and pleased with how the series turned out because, you know, the the tendency is to titillate the audience with some kind of answer because leaving things unanswered is unsatisfying for a storyteller, you know, <laughs> and when you're yeah. watching when you're watching a show about a mystery, you want to find out, you know, the answer to the mystery. So there's a lot of um, incentive for, you know, and that's happened. That's happened to me in the past uh, with other shows. Is, uh, you know, the answer that they presented in the show ended up being bullshit. In this case, they were upfront with me that that Gary Stewart's claims they didn't believe, and that they were exploring the story with his. Uh, uh, adopted parents and his uh, biological parents, and they found a lot of those details to be true when they did their own fact-checking. But as soon as he starts talking about his dad being the Zodiac killer, you know, it just goes off the rails. You know, his story, none of it adds up. Like, for some reason, he had this need to to link the Zodiac um, killer to his story. And I'm, I don't know what his thinking was behind that, if he if he genuinely believed it or if he was using it as a way to amplify his story mm-hmm. to be more interesting to publishers or maybe the publishers kind of pushed it along that way. Anyway, that's all speculation, but the end result was, you know, a lot of stretching on his and his co-authors part to tell the story of the Zodiac killer as if it was his own, you know, connected to his father. Mm-hmm. And uh, so anyway, I, they invited me over to talk about the cipher issue, you know, the claims that he made in the book of finding his father's name in, I think, three different or four different ciphers. So he found it in the 408 using some weird method. He found it in the 340 by looking at the columns of symbols and rearranging things. And, uh, and he had some way of finding it in the other two, but, you know, there's not much detail on that because there's nothing to work with. So I explained the problems with his solution to the producers and um, came away from it optimistic, but also worried that they were going to turn it into a, you know, pro Gary Stewart story. You know, yeah. hey, this guy solved the case. Isn't that amazing? You know, it's going to make for a very dramatic story, you know, and it's not going to be true. Mm-hmm. And so that was the reaction it got at the beginning. I remember when it finally aired, a lot of the reaction in the community was most people who follow the case didn't believe his story. So they had a lot of the same expectations of, oh, they're they're giving this guy too much exposure. You know, they're they're go great. This is here's another in a long line of bogus claims that have been getting a lot of media attention and they're completely wrong. And so there's a lot of you know cynicism feeding feeding into those reactions. But then eventually that last episode airs and they completely, like you said, dismantled his, his case, his evidence. And, you know, basically just completely humiliated the guy. <laughs> and and it, so the story is more about, it's more about, you know, how he was broken by the whole thing, you know, mm-hmm. his, his life experience and, you know, falling into this rabbit hole 
these kind of delusional ideas about being linked to the Zodiac Killer. And it's just, you just feel sorry for him because he's trying to connect with his biological parents and trying to learn where he came from and all this. And for some reason, he felt the need to link himself to the Zodiac case, but it ends up turning into a best-selling book and then into this series, which kind of just reveals the truth of everything that that really went down. And it's just a really bizarre story. But I'm, I'm happy how the series turned out because it really shows, um, it tells a true crime story from a different angle. It, just, it tells it from a personal point of view about Gary Stewart. So the story is more about him than the Zodiac Killer. And that, that made it pretty interesting, I think. Well, some people might feel a little sorry for him. Uh, I think after watching this show, you might not have a lot of sympathy for him, especially as you said, the first couple of episodes are presented in a way where it seems like they might be about to endorse his theories. And then when you get to the final episode, it's a real change of pace and uh, really does a thorough job of exposing all the problems with his theories. Because, you know, as we've talked about before, I don't know whether or not Gary Stewart actually believes. I tend to think that he doesn't really believe it myself, but that's just my opinion. So I feel like that show did a really good job of laying out why he claims he believes these things and then totally dismantling that entire foundation to the point where, you know, at the end of the fourth episode, there's literally nothing left to accuse his father. And yet he still claims that all of these uh, things about his father are true. He still claims that the cipher solutions are true when they're obviously not. So it's a good example of what happens to some people who become obsessed with this case and obsessed with the notion that they've solved the ciphers. That special's probably been watched more than most uh, Zodiac shows, largely because it's available for streaming. So I think it reached a wider audience than the book itself did. But we'll have to see what kind of lasting impact that series has on people. Because as you may have noted, the night that the show aired immediately afterwards, Gary Stewart was on social media telling people that there's concrete evidence in his book that the show didn't present, which we all know is a pile of mule fritters. (laughs) He'd be an interesting guest for your next podcast. (laughs) Yeah, he does have a history of um, reacting very angrily towards um, um, people that point out or criticize his claims. And, you know, it's it's a common trait I've come across with, um, like you said, people that can't let go of their ideas. They're so, they bought, buy into their ideas so um, fervently that, you know, a lot of the people who send me solutions are, they're usually fairly reasonable and friendly, willing to talk about ideas, I do find the time to, to respond to them. And... But there's still a handful that, you know, if you don't answer them, they'll just keep hammering you with stuff. And when you do answer and you criticize anything or you point out where they might have gone wrong or you try to suggest ways to, for them to fix the problems in their solution, they'll they get very hostile. And some of them get some of them get like like it's kind of scary how hostile they get. Oh, I know. Yeah. And yeah, threats of harm and stuff like that and thrown at me for Jeez. daring daring to this disagree with their solutions and it it just makes me think about you know the ways that people come to believe things is you know we're we're all trying to make sense of uh unanswered questions and you know some people really they don't have the same tools to explore 
unanswered questions. You know, we don't all share the same tools for trying to arrive at the truth. And, you know, like you said, everyone brings their own biases and their own ideas to the problem. Mine are scientifically oriented. You know, I try to be as scientific as possible. I try to use science to verify the um, solutions to ciphers or whatever I'm working on. If I think that I'm on the right track, you know, I have to, I have to prove that I'm on the right track. I have to conduct experiments. I have to design an experiment, come up with a question that the experiment is asking and collect evidence to support or reject the hypothesis of the experiment, you know, the basic scientific method. That's how I try to dig around for answers. Answer, answers yet, but uh, you know, I'm learning different things along the way, but not what the solution to the 340 is. <laughs> but uh, you know, not everyone comes to the problem with that set of tools. They're coming at it with with different ideas and so and different standards too, because I yeah. think it comes down to the fact of whether or not you care whether or not your beliefs are true, <laughs> whether they can actually be demonstrated to be true, or just whether or not they're emotionally or psychologically satisfying to you yeah and that might be true enough for them like the the version of true that i feel that's the same feeling they get but they get there a different way yeah yeah and that's you know that's more of a, like a philosophical kind of <laughs> discussion you know what yeah. what constitutes truth i mean we can get we can approximate it with a scientific process but that's not the only way to get to something that's true but it's the the only way i know that that works for me that is applicable for this topic you know and you can open up all kinds of cans of worms by saying well zodiac wasn't scientific so why do i have to be mm -hmm. and i get that i get that idea a lot from people you know it's like why should zodiac be scientific or mathematically minded well he doesn't he doesn't have to be but if you're going to make a claim about what he has done you have to prove that that would that that is what he has done, yeah. You know? And so you have to use something that has some rigor to it. You can't just convict somebody of murder by you know telling a story. You have to have hard evidence, and there's a reason why certain evidence is considered strong enough to convict someone. Well, and I think also it's a good idea that you're not spending a lot of time trying to debunk every solution that's been proposed, because let's face it, that would be an endless series of just constantly debunking nonsense. So the show is called Let's Crack Zodiac. Yes. And it's available on YouTube. Is there any information that you want to share with people about how to contact you with the ideas about the ciphers? One way is to just go to my um, YouTube channel. Just search for Let's Crack Zodiac on YouTube and my channel will come up. You can send me uh, comments there or go to my site, ZodiacKillerCiphers.com. You can leave me messages there. Or you can contact me on the forums, uh, Mike Morford's forum at ZodiacKillerSite.com or via Twitter. I'm on Twitter at DRanchak. So thanks again for being on the show. I'm glad to have you back and hopefully we'll talk again soon. It was fun. All right, take care. You too. Produced by Michael Butterfield. Featuring 
David Aranchak of ZodiacKillerCiphers.com. Zodiac, A to Z. Produced for ZodiacKillerFacts.com. Thank you.